This is Our Voices. I'm Mario Trimble. In order to be a place where everyone in our community feels valued and connected, we first have to ensure everyone believes they belong. These are Our Voices, a joint podcast production from the Colorado and Denver Bar Associations, Equity, Diversity, and Inclusivity Joint Steering Committee. Our Voices shines a light on the unique stories, experiences, and backgrounds of our member leaders so that we can help each other walk together. Brian Large is a magistrate in Colorado's 17th Judicial District. Brian's leadership path in the LGBT Bar Association and the CBA began with his early volunteer work for Metro Volunteer Lawyers and the Rocky Mountain Immigrant Advocacy Network. In law school and beyond, he realized the value of mentors and maintains those valuable relationships today. Brian's dedication to service and helping the legal profession as well as the people affected by our justice system is a constant in his life. Brian sat down with fellow bar leaders Linda Moss and Mallory Revel to talk about the important people and events that have shaped his path to the bar and inform his judicial philosophy. Throughout their conversation, it's clear that his grandfather, who always succeeded at being the fun old guy in the room, remains Brian's greatest influence. Hello and welcome to this episode of Our Voices. I'm Mallory Revel with Foster Graham, Milstein, and Kalisher, and today I'm here with my co-host, Linda Moss. Hi, I'm Linda Moss. I'm a family law attorney with Sutter Roche Smith and Schellenberger. And today as our guest, we are thrilled to have... Hi, I'm Brian Large. I'm a magistrate in the 17th Judicial District, and I also sit on the board of the Colorado LGBT Bar Association. Welcome, Brian. We're so excited to have you here today. Thank you. I'm really excited to be here. Awesome. So um, as you know, with our podcast, we want to talk all about you. So uh, we're going to go through who were you, who are you, and who are you going to be? So let's start with who were you? Who were you as a child? <laughs> Tell us about little baby Brian. Magistrate, uh, <laughs> <laughs> little baby Brian. <laughs> Actually, so my grandfather was a printer, and and he was very influential on my life, and so I'm sure there'll be plenty of grandpa stories today. But um, but he had a T-shirt. I had a T-shirt that he had made for me that said, "I'm a little large." When I was a baby. So, um, but no, I uh, I was born here in Denver. Uh, we lived up here for a few years, and. Uh, uh, and then we moved to Canyon City, where I grew up uh, mostly. My parents were really young when I was born. Um, I think they met each other when they were 18. My mm-hmm. dad was a cook and my mom was a waitress. And, um, so, you know, babies happen. And um, <laughs> Did they meet working at the same they, restaurant? Yes, they Very did. Cute. They did, yeah. <clears throat> and uh, What restaurant? It was at a place called the Buckskin Joe down in Canyon City. It was this old, like... Western theme park at the Royal Gorge, but it's not there anymore. Mm. Um, so. Sounds very Canyon City. Yeah, it was very Canyon <laughs> I like City. it. So, like John Wayne would come shoot movies there oh, and, like, back cool. in the day. And so, yeah. Awesome. Uh, but yeah, so I, I grew up mostly in Canyon City. Um, I had very young parents, obviously. Um, and my grandparents were pretty young also. Um, so I grew up very heavily influenced by my grandparents. Mm. Uh, my, my parents split up when I was about four years old and, uh, that's when we moved to Canyon city and my grandparents were just there all the time. My grandfather was a printer by, by trade. He was, uh, 
Uh, he owned a local print shop there in Canyon City, and it's still in the family. My aunt uh, runs it now. Um, but I grew up working in the print shop, and from the time I was a, a kindergartner, I mean, it was just it was the family business, and it's what the family did. And so, you know, we would learn to gather papers when they were making books, and it was like this page goes on top of that page, and and wow. you just work your way down the line. And you know, I'm like you know five six year old, and like you know yeah. barely able to reach the table, but there I was, and so that was that was. What I did growing up, I um, grew up uh, living mostly with my mom up until high school and um, and just heavily influenced by my grandpa. He was a businessman in town. He taught me the value of a handshake. Uh, he um, really just, you know, taught me, really ingrained in me, like, you know, how important giving somebody your word is, um, being able to deliver on that. And those are values that I have had my whole life. I didn't come from an educated family. I came from a very, very blue collar family. And that was how I grew up. What's your favorite story about your grandpa? Oh my gosh, I have so many. (laughs) And if I tell too many, I I might cry. (laughs) No, actually, my favorite story about my grandpa is, um, my grandpa, so I'm the oldest grandchild. um, And probably the favorite at least for my grandpa my, my grandma i've got one cousin that we're like locked in a tie but um Isn't that great <laughs> um i actually got sworn in at the u.s supreme court a couple years ago and um and you could take one guest with you to the to the u.s mm. supreme court when you go and you go and if you've never done this you go during a hearing it and, and before the the oral arguments begin they swear in the new um initiates i don't even know what you call them the new and so um so i got to take one guest and so my grandpa and i flew to dc together and Mm, i took him out there and we spent a long weekend in dc and um so that was two years ago and then um i lost my grandpa to cancer a little over Mm. a year ago Mm. and uh, so that was like the last really big thing i got to do with my grandpa and uh so that's my favorite story Um, we just had the best time I, i had my grandpa all to myself for a whole weekend and that was that was the coolest gift ever. Yeah. So special. Does a specific justice swear you in or how does what does that look like? It's actually the the clerk of the court does okay. the actual thing, okay. but you, so you have somebody go up and move admission of your group and they uh, I, I think they recite your name and what state you're from and um, you know and then, like they're all up there like all nine of them are up there. Uh, and the sketch artist was behind me. And um, so I went and looked up the sketches from oral argument that day. And I am so sure that the back of my head (laughs) is in two of his sketches. And so I bought the sketches. Um, I I ordered the prints from the sketches and and I have them. And that's like the coolest souvenir. (laughs) That's even more cool than my certificate from the court. (laughs) Very neat. Very neat. Wow. Awesome. Cool. So are you one of those people who has like a bone crushing handshake? No, I don't think so. <laughs> no, or is it more, yeah. so that more was the symbolic <laughs> power of handshake. You know, my grandpa never really taught me that, but my dad um, really did. He's like, you got to have a nice firm handshake, uh-huh. and I just, I, I don't know that. I mean, I don't exactly have like a weak handshake, and now we're not allowed to shake hands, right? Well, like, I, it's like <laughs> I got like a solid fist or elbow bump right now. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I never really appreciate those people who want to break my hand. It's <laughs> <laughs> not necessary. <laughs> Growing up, did you know that you wanted to be a lawyer or did you want to do lots of different things? I did not know that I wanted to be a lawyer. I wasn't really sure what I wanted to be. I grew up in a small town. People that I grew up with um, mostly graduated from high school and then got a job and did something. Mm-hmm. And, and so college wasn't 
really a huge focus. Um, my dad always said you need to go to college because you can't make it in the world if you don't go to college. Mm-hmm. And that was kind of like the bare minimum requirement. Um, and so I knew that I would go to college someday, but nobody ever really taught me like how to get ready for college yeah, or sure. any of those things. When I was in high school, I eventually moved in with my dad and then we moved to Denver and, um, and I went to private school. I went to Regis, uh, Regis Jesuit high school and, um, coming from a very blue collar <laughs> environment and being dropped into this environment of 700 men only mm. um, students uh, that did not come from the same sort of background that I came from was a very, very intimidating uh, mm, process. Yeah. Um, but my dad thought this would be a good way to um, get me my education by sending me to the school. And, and I chose to go there too. I mean, it's not like he forced me to go. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I was probably miserable throughout the entire time that I was there until I got to college and I had mm-hmm. realized that I learned how to study. Um, and that was, that was I, I remember very distinctly in the first month or so of being in college that I was really appreciative of going to high school where I went to high school because I really was kind of miserable where I was at there. And so, um, you know, I like missed the girls that I ran around with in Canyon yeah. City and um, I'm guessing that was also extremely valuable for law school. It probably was. The law school was definitely not on my radar. Um, and, and in high school, things didn't come really easy to me either. Um, Spanish came really easy to me. And I don't know why. Um, I don't I, I, I don't know why. I really don't. My dad's side of the family is um, uh, Hispanic from when Southern Colorado used to be part of Mexico. My grandfather spoke Spanish as his first language, but they never taught my dad. And so I didn't learn Spanish growing up either. Mm. But Spanish came really easy to me in high school. And so I wanted to be a Spanish teacher. That was what Mm. I wanted to do. I thought I would be a teacher. I'll go to college. I'll be a teacher. Um, I'll teach Spanish because that came easy to me. And um, so I got my undergrad degree in Spanish at the University of New Mexico. Oh, wow. Very cool. How did you pick the University of New Mexico? (sighs) I knew I needed to get out. I knew I wanted some separation. Mm -hmm. I wanted to go a little ways away. I applied to one university, and it was the University of Wyoming, um, not the University of New Mexico. Because sure. <laughs> I was like, I'm going to go out of state. Uh, but not too far. Not too far. <laughs> be close enough to be able to come home. And I applied to the University of Wyoming, and there were a couple of other guys that I was at school with that wanted to go to the University of Wyoming or at least were interested in it. And so we made arrangements to go spend the night at, uh, at the University of Wyoming and uh, contacted their admissions and stayed in the dorms and whatever. And it was like 8.30, 9 o'clock at night, and we're driving around town trying to find something to do. And there was – and so this is 1994, 95-ish. Um, there was nothing to do at 9 o'clock at night in Laramie. And it was the craziest thing. And there was a bar on every corner. I just re- really, like, remember there being lots of bars around. Mm. Um, and we certainly weren't old enough to get into yeah. a bar. Um, and uh, and I was a little terrified. I came home and I was like, I can't live in that town. That that town's not for me. It's way too small. Mm-hmm. And so I, like, whipped out an application at the University of New Mexico. And I was like, <laughs> I know Albuquerque's bigger than Laramie. And um, I didn't even go visit. I, oh, I wow. um, sent it off. And that's um, – the rest is history. So um, I ended up loving New Mexico. I, I miss the food so yeah. much. I miss the architecture and the culture. And um, I loved being in Albuquerque. It was it was a fantastic experience. Do you go back to New Mexico a lot now? Not a whole lot. Um, I uh, From time to time. And I, I have some friends down there. And I pass through there when I'm driving to Arizona or something. But Did you ever consider staying there? 
I did. It's um, it's actually part of my law school story. Um, so I um, went to college. I uh, my father was running a property management company in Mexico at the time, and he was needing some help with management stuff. And so I was helping him out and commuting a little bit. I mean, it was a little town south of Phoenix called Rocky Point. It was about a four hour drive from Phoenix or Tucson. And um, so after college, my dad needed help and said, "Can you come down here for a while?" And so instead of looking for a teaching job, I moved to Mexico. And I got married. Um, I had the most amazing wife. Uh, uh, she um, just absolutely beautiful and absolutely wonderful to me. And uh, we we had a great time, but for a few things. Um, sure. <laughs> that would be the rest of my story here. But, um, <laughs> we'll get there. <laughs> we'll get there. Um, but yeah, we. Uh, I, I had a great life in Mexico. Mexico is a hard place to live, though. It's a hard place to do business. Um, if you you know at the time in the early 2000s if you needed to go to the bank it could be like an hour or two long wait in in line to wow. um you know conduct your regular business and and whatever it's like the DMV yeah, yeah yeah it was just kind of miserable at the time you would send an employee to the bank to hold your spot in line oh and then gosh. they would like let you know like hey come down come on down and grab your spot and so um yeah Mexico was a really hard place to live at some point though our house got broken into and we had mm-hmm. gone to the US for the weekend um, I had a pickup truck in the garage, and somebody had loaded up my pickup truck with all of the electronics in the home and stole the pickup truck. And so, oh, and, wow. <laughs> and That's like, a really thorough job. Yeah, yeah. So <laughs> then we had to live with a security guard outside of our house. And yeah. and I just mm-hmm. – so by this time, my son was born, um, and I said, I don't want to live like this. I don't want to live a life where I have to have a security guard outside my house. And – I was living pretty well in Mexico because Mexico's cheap to live in, sure. and um, and I was in property management, and um, that wasn't a horrible business to be in. Um, and so we decided we were going to go back to the U.S. and we needed a plan. And I said, I'm going to apply to law school. I'd taken a couple of law classes, um, in my part of my undergrad, and so I applied to law school. And I really wanted to go back to Albuquerque. That was that was kind of the, mm-hmm. the goal. We had decided we we're going to go back to Albuquerque. Um, my wife was learning English and, uh, we thought Albuquerque would be a nice place for us. And I went back to the University of New Mexico to the admissions office and I was applying to all sorts of law schools. Um, you know, I didn't have the greatest of GPAs. I didn't have a stellar LSAT score and I knew I was going to struggle getting into law school, but I actually thought New Mexico would be a no brainer because I did my undergrad there and I loved it so much. And I was going to talk him into letting me in. That's Mm -hmm. right. And so I went to the admissions office and I said, hey, you know, here's my situation. I really want to come back to school here. And the admissions counselor at the time said, don't waste your money on the application fee. And I was like heartbroken. <laughs> like, yeah, why would so you harsh. tell me something like that? She says, um, you'll never make it through your first year of law school. And if you do, there is no way you'll ever pass the bar exam. Why? Because of my GPA and my LSAT score. Like statistically, she was right. And um, she didn't have to say it. No. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my gosh. I actually credit that that woman for a lot of things in my life. I really, really do, Um, particularly for passing the bar exam on my first try. (laughs) Because I could hear her voice in the back of my head when it came time to sit for the bar exam that she kept telling me I wasn't going to pass the bar exam and damn it, I was going to pass the bar exam. Mm. Um, Sometimes so. you need a naysayer. Yes, yes. It was it was very motivational for me. I bet she would love to hear that she was your naysayer <laughs> <laughs> and helped you get to where you are. Uh, 
So I, I hope that many people were helped by her words. <laughs> <laughs> so what was your law school experience like? Oh, I loved law school. I had so oh, much fun. So yay. That I, is a rare answer. I have <laughs> to tell you. Well, rare answer. So let's see. I started law school in the fall of 2003. I was in the evening program at DU. Uh, we came back to Denver and I was really excited to come back to Denver. It's, you know, I was crushed. I wasn't going to Albuquerque, but wow, Denver. And so, Mm. um, so yeah, so I, uh, came to law school and that was fall of 2003. My daughter was born in the summer of 2004 and I was kind of struggling, not kind of, I was really struggling with, um, some of my sexual orientation issues Mm. and, um, you know, I never like cheated with cheated on my wife or anything sure. like that. Um, I, I'd actually never been on a date with a guy before. Um, before I came out, I'd never, um, I'd never. I, I don't know. I knew I had an attraction, but I, you know, you I, never I, had any experience to kind of back yeah. that up. Yeah, and and um, so some of those more intimate parts of my marriage were struggling. Um, although the rest of my marriage was was great, and yeah. um. And so I struggled with that really, really hard for a number of years. Um, we, we were married for five years total, but each year was just a little bit worse. And finally, in the spring of 2005, um, I decided I needed to um, make some changes in life. And um, so I was motivated by it was uh, I, I grew up Catholic and mm-hmm. um, some of it was kind of motivated by um, Lent and, and, um, you know, Lent. yeah, yeah. I mean, it's a time when, you know, you like really focus on some of, I don't know, like take a real deep look. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I suppose so. Do, yeah. Do some soul searching and, and give up chocolate and give up chocolate. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, no, so I, I came out in the spring of 2005. Wow. Um, my daughter was not quite a year old yet. My son was, um, about two and a half, almost three years old. And, um, Got divorced and came out. Uh, my children have never really known anything other than dad's gay. That's kind of what they mm-hmm. grew up with. Um, awesome kids, by the way. I just have to throw <laughs> that in there. Amazing kids. I am such, such a, a proud joy to father. have around. <laughs> I'm a very proud father. It's uh, it really has been the very best part of my life. How old are they now? Uh, 16 and 18. So, oh, okay. Yeah. So not quite kids anymore. Not quite kids anymore, and I get reminded of that every once in a while, <laughs> especially by the 18 year old who yeah. is now 18 and can make his own decisions for himself. And so and <laughs> don't <adults>. you forget. <laughs> yep. But um, yeah, no, I uh, my kids are great but yeah so I I, um, came out got divorced um, and my wife was actually just a huge cheerleader of mine I was she was so supportive of me coming out which was also really really helpful Mm -hmm. and we we had a great relationship for a number of years until um, just until time passed and it just wasn't great anymore but um, but she was such a huge cheerleader of mine and so I was in law school and just terrified like oh my god I'm gonna lose my family I'm gonna not have a career and everybody's gonna know I'm gay and like this is just gonna be tragic uh and uh so I joined the outlaws at DU which is the LGBT student group there mm-hmm. and they had a time where you could sign up for a mentor and I signed up for a mentor uh and I got assigned um now judge Andy McCallan was my assigned mentor um he was an attorney at the attorney general's office at the time and I don't know that there's any one particular thing that, that Andy McCallan said to me that made things better, but it was the way he 
led his own life and the way mm. he um, carried his own career. And he really did make me feel better about, yes, you can be a gay lawyer and like everything's going to be okay. The whole world's not going to fall apart. But, <laughs> um, you know, I was just kind of in the midst of coming out and not sure what I was going to lose along the way. Yeah. Just law school in and of itself is enough. Yeah. Like mm-hmm. I can't imagine tacking on so much more on top of it. Yeah. And that was this, that was the end of the tail end of my second year of law school wow. when all of that happened. And so. Oh, wow. So you were well in. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I wasn't even sure, like, should I even finish law school? Like, is, mm. you know, am I even wow. going to be able to get a job someday or yeah. something like Other that? Other than that really powerful mentor, how did you navigate that? I... <laughs> like sticking my finger up in the air yeah. and see which way the wind blows and go that way. I, I don't know. I mean, it was, uh, it was tough. I mean, it was, it had its tough parts. It had its fun parts. I had a blast in law school. I, um, met so many wonderful people, uh, people that I'm still in touch with. Um, I really did. I, I enjoyed my law school experience so much, but also it was also my coming out experience and mm-hmm. which was also a very fun time. So, yeah. Um, and yeah, that was great. So I graduated in December of 2006. There was another mentor that was really important to me in law school and beyond as well. Um, it's Byron Hammond and he's a trust and estates attorney and he was actually one of my law professors at school. And, um, you know, both of these men just really made me feel like everything was going to be okay. And although Judge McCallan was my assigned mentor when I was a law student, um, and that was now a really long time ago, um, and um, uh, Byron Hammond was not really an assigned mentor. It was kind of just a, a... um, organic mentor relationship, but these are two people that I still keep in touch with mm. as often as I can. And you know, if I have these big decisions in my career to make, these are the people that I go to and talk to. And uh, the amount of influence that these two people have had on my life and my career, I, I just there is n- there will never be enough to pay that back to those two mm. people. And, and just so influential. Like Hannah Prof says, your personal board of directors. That's right. <laughs> um, out of curiosity when you joined outlaws did you have any kind of trepidation or feeling of conflict about that since you had only ever been with a woman and had never been with a man before or were you kind of just ready to be like yes this is me uh no I was terrified walking in I was scared of who would see me walking into the room and why I was there and I mean it just was you know I I was going to have to go and introduce myself to people that um you know, I probably should have known already anyway, but I didn't. It just mm-hmm. wasn't the circle of, of people that I was running around with. And I was in the evening program, too. And so this was a oh. day program kind yeah. of group. And so. Oh, wow. Yeah, so um, like fish out, out of water. A little yeah. Bit. Yeah. It was a strange experience, but it was it was fun. So. How was your academic experience of law school? It was great. Um, you know, I didn't I've, I've never been a stellar student. Uh, my GPA was probably better in law school than it was in my undergrad. Um, I really don't remember if I'm being totally honest, but I, sure. I um, you know, some classes I did really, really well in some I struggled a little bit in. But um, but no, I, I loved the academics. I loved everything that I studied. I got to do my last semester of law school at Georgetown and I took aviation law and refugee law, which have nothing to do with each other, but (laughs) um, I just needed two more classes that were electives. And, um, I was the best. Yeah. You can just take those really strange, interesting classes. (laughs) Yeah. Wow. What did you learn in aviation law? Uh, it's a lot more international treaties than I ever expected it to be. I, I had no idea how many 
international treaties govern how your airplane flies over borders and so the wall of the air <laughs> that's right yeah. so, <laughs> it's really fascinating sense. i had my private pilot's license when i was an undergrad and so um i just i've always enjoyed flying and and airplane nerdiness and so very cool do you still fly i don't the last time i flew was about a week before my son was born and um, after he was born, I was like, you know, maybe I should like not do dangerous things. <laughs> <laughs> Kids will do that. <laughs> yeah. And then, you know, more recently, I wish I was flying again, um, especially in the last 10 years or so. But it's just it's kind of pricey to get into. Um, I'll start flying again eventually. But. Kids literally ground you. Yeah, I, I, I got grounded. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, until your son decides he wants to start. Yeah. <laughs> What was your first job out of law school? Uh, so I, again, I didn't grow up in any sort of environment where like, you know, like this is how you should like go to law school or this mm. is how you should get your graduate degree or anything like that. And I said, I'm going to be the one responsible for my success or failure in life and I'm going to hang a shingle. And mm. so you hung a shingle like hung right out of law school. Like oh, right out. Man. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Um, I think we, and I can't remember the exact dates, but I got sore in. Someday in the middle of May, um, I uh, formed my LLC the very next day, um, went down to the bank and opened my Coltaf account. And oh, my, my God. Business account. Oh, it was a really dumb idea. Wow. And I, I can only see that now. I thought it was a great idea that at the time. So and so bold. My law firm was called The Large Law Firm. And that was, the, <laughs> and I was a one man band. So. Oh, goodness. What kind of law were you practicing? Uh, so I really thought I was going to get into wills and estates oh, and trusts yeah. and, and things like that. Um, and I thought that I would do family law mm-hmm. um, to get there, um, to kind of build a, a client base um, and earn some money along the way. Um, but because my wife was born in Mexico and because we had gone through this whole immigration process, I had this curiosity about immigration law. And I just thought, you know, how cool would it be? And because of the way we did things the right way, um, and not that there's a wrong way per se, but, you know, we we did things the way that people would normally apply to come to the United States. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it was all a paperwork process. We had hired a lawyer for it. And I was like, I can fill out those forms. That's easy. Anybody can do that. And so, um, so I thought I would do a little bit of immigration work along the way. And so here I was with my, you know, um, ink's not dry on my license yet and my <laughs> newly formed LLC. And I had some office space and I had nothing to do. So I called up uh, Metro Volunteer Lawyers and I said, oh, yeah. I will take two pro bono cases. I have nothing to do. Um, I'll take two pro bono family law cases. And I called up Remain and I said... Hi, my name's Brian. I have nothing to do. Um, <laughs> can you send me two immigration cases? Mm-hmm. And uh, what I did never realized about immigration law was how much litigation there was. Mm-hmm. And um, I never really pictured myself as a courtroom kind of lawyer when I was in law school, uh, which is really odd because that's you were I, filling out the yeah, forms. I was filling out the forms. That's right. <laughs> you want a will? Okay, I'll write yeah. you a will. <laughs> and so, um, and and I just I, I fell in love with my immigration practice, uh, and it took off really quickly. I spoke Spanish. Um, and that was really helpful. I um, loved practicing immigration law. But I can remember my very first two clients, the two pro bono clients that I got from Romaine. 
Um, one of them, uh, so Remain, uh, at the time, I think it was like a couple times a week. I'm sure it's probably a couple times a day now, but they go out and teach a legal orientation program to the everybody new arriving at the immigration mm. jail. And so I went out there to go learn that because I was going to also teach that course. And they said, they said, can you, you know, if you're going to teach, you know, we want a six month commitment from you. And I was like, oh God, I don't know if I can do six month commitment. Like, you know, that's a big commitment. I was out there like two years later still teaching. It was so (laughs) much fun teaching their legal orientation program. And I just went one day a week and and that was my little volunteer work that I did. And I I loved it. But I remember the very first person in that room though, um, Kind of touched me in the army. Says you need to help me. I need to get back to my family. They need me to be working. And I was like, "Whoa! Like I'm new here, man!" Like, <laughs> <laughs> and he's he was very insistent. You you need to help me get out of here because mm-hmm. I need to go back to my family. Um, and it would turn out that um, Remain would eventually assign me his case, mm-hmm. and um, uh, he he had a very tough case. But but he's um, got his green card, and and he lives in Texas with his family now. And uh, I still hear from him every well, about every year or two. I'll, I'll hear something oh, from either him amazing. or his wife. And so yeah. yeah. Yeah, so it just that was a wonderful experience. So clearly, your your firm grew. Yeah, it did. There. I ended up having a couple of attorneys come work for me. Um, about this time, uh, there had been a little bit of a custody battle um, with my kids, and I got half custody of my kids. And mm. it was a really, really wonderful time. But I really wasn't sure how I was going to make it work running a law firm and raising two kids. And so mm-hmm. um, at least half time. And um, as things would have it, um, I got uh, a job offer to go work at Joseph Law Firm, which mm-hmm. uh, now is called Joseph and Hall. Um, but it, it is a wonderful immigration firm. Uh, they have a national reputation for the work that they do. Um, and so I went to go work at Joseph Law Firm and uh, gave up my, my own little practice and went to go work there. And uh, so, I, so I had my practice for about four and a half years. I was at Joseph Law Firm for a little over two years, probably two and a half years. And then I got uh, a job offer to go work over at Colco and Associates, which is now Colco and Casey, and which is another immigration firm. Um, so I did that for another couple of years, so about nine, nine years or so um, hmm. in private practice. And then you next went to attorney regulation, right? I did, yeah. Okay. So, um, what was that like? I got asked, while I was a private practitioner in immigration law, I got asked to be an expert witness in a couple of cases, which was a really cool thing, I thought. What a compliment. Yeah. I'm an expert. <laughs> yeah. And so I got to go testify before the presiding disciplinary judge, which is not a place you really want to be. <laughs> like, it's like being in the principal's office. Yeah. And, um and a job posted at attorney regulation for a trial attorney. And I was like, that is such a long shot job. Like, who gets that kind of job? Like, who is so good to be able to deserve a job like that? And, um, but I really enjoyed the work that I was doing with attorney regulation, um, you know, and I, I have always tried really hard to give back to the profession as much as I could and being involved in bar associations and um, doing everything that I could to make the profession a better place. Um, and so I applied and, um, I interviewed again. I, my, my second interview was in Jim Coyle's office and I, again, a place you are not supposed to be <laughs> in your career should not be in Jim Coyle's office. It's like being in the principal's office. Mm-hmm. And, um, I remember being like really, really nervous cause I was in Jim Coyle's office. Yeah. <laughs> Um, but, uh, he, uh, he took a chance on me and, and brought me on his staff as a trial attorney and, um, I spent four years at attorney regulation, and uh, it really um, 
is such an amazing place to work. They are so focused on uh, helping lawyers whenever they can and not mm-hmm. penalizing lawyers. Um, surely there are some people that should not be practicing. They should, you know, there are people that are stealing clients' money or doing things they shouldn't be doing and really just should not have a license or should take a time out, a suspension or something sure. like that. But, but their focus, in my mind, from my experience, everything that I saw, the focus at attorney regulation was not let's go hit as many lawyers over the head as we can. Let's, um, you know, if people need mental health treatment or people need, um, uh, maybe some alcohol monitoring, or mm-hmm. um, maybe they need to take some CLEs. Maybe they need to go to trust account school or have a financial monitor. Um, you know, can we help lawyers get their books straight? Um, are they really stealing money, or they just have a really bad bookkeeping program going yeah. on? Yeah, I was gonna say, how much of that is attorneys just being really terrible at running businesses? Yeah, I mean, because we weren't taught to do that, right? So. It's- I think that must be a, an enormous struggle in the profession that you're supposed to run your business and no one's ever told you how and you have to kind of just figure it out along. How did you figure it out? What, as a brand new person out of law school. It was terrifying. It was very manual. Like I, I was like, who can afford that kind of software? I'm just going to write in my ledger over here. Oh my God. <laughs> it was awful. It was, it was miserable. Uh, so no, I loved, I, I absolutely loved my experience at attorney regulation and, um, even in knowing that I wasn't, my, my long-term plan wasn't necessarily to stay at attorney regulation. I would have been very, very happy had I spent the entire rest of my career there. It just was an amazing place to work, an amazing group of people uh, that um, really are trying really hard to um, keep the public safe and keep the profession um, the way the profession should be kept. You mentioned that you've done everything that you can to help the profession. Um, other than pro bono work, which was clearly important to you, what are other examples of how you help the professional? Oh my gosh! I so somebody asked me if I would be willing to be the liaison between. Uh, so there was a there is a local chapter of the American Immigration Lawyers Association in Colorado, and so when I was in private practice, somebody asked me if I would be willing to be the liaison between the Colorado chapter of AILA and the immigration courts, and I was like, that sounds. No, like that sounds hard. And they're like, no, please, we really need somebody to do this. Um, and so I got invited to take a volunteer position. I was voluntold, right? And so, <laughs> um, and so I did that and I got involved in AILA and, uh, and I loved it. I loved being able to do things. Um, you know, I was in charge of communicating for the Immigration Defense Bar with the immigration courts and I got to know immigration judges and, um, Mm. you know, it was just, it was such a surreal experience at the time um, that I would eventually end up getting more and more involved in leadership at AILA um, and both locally and nationally. I eventually became a chapter chair here in Colorado and then I ran for their national board of governors. Um, I joined this Latin America chapter that they had and was on their board and it was just so involved in the immigration bar. Uh, and then, you know, opportunities started to rise in the LGBT bar. And some of it was, mm-hmm. you know, marketing related that, you know, I wanted to bring my immigration practice to other bars and um, try to bring in more clients and things like that. But some of it was I just really wanted to be involved and, and do things. I got involved in the CPA. Um, at some point, uh, Judge McAllen told me, like, you should go to some women's bar events. And I was like, why would I go to a women's <laughs> bar event? Um, and he um, he said both the women's bar and the Hispanic bar were places that I should look at getting involved. Yeah. And so um, 
my best friend, uh, she was a senior attorney at Joseph Law Firm with me. She was right across the hall from me. Um, she was also very involved in the women's bar and was on their board at the time and would just talk about how wonderful this experience was. And so I would go to these women's bar events and I would like feel like, you know, I was one of about four men in the room sometimes. And, mm-hmm. um, but the, the, uh, energy from those rooms, the, um, forward thinking, the positive feelings uh, that just oozed off of people uh, energized me like you would not believe. And I would leave those events thinking, yeah, this profession is going to be okay. Um, you know, and it just, it was, it was so neat. I love the Women's Bar Association. I'm such a huge fan of them. And I tell everybody, join the Women's Bar Association. <laughs> yeah, you and Judge Espinoza yeah. and Denver are very much yep. frequent faces at CWBA events. Yep. And that's I, actually how I got to know Judge Espinoza. Yeah. So. And I'll tell you, I love seeing your faces there. I mean, it, it elevates everyone. Um, so I appreciate your involvement in Good. CWBA. <laughs> um, so obviously you're on the bench now. Yes. Tell us a little bit about that journey, what that looked like. Uh, so um, I started applying to be a judge, a district court judge. And uh, last summer I got nominated and I was one of the three people that got sent up to the governor and um, I did not get appointed. Um, and I had actually had put my name in for magistrate as well. And uh so after the governor made his appointment, uh, he appointed Judge Lieberman, Emily Lieberman, up in the 17th, mm-hmm. and she's a wonderful judge. Uh, and the governor probably made the right choice at that point. <laughs> and so, um, but uh, Judge Anderson, Judge Emily Anderson, uh, gave me a call and said, "I know you're on my list of people that have applied." And um, there was some sort of a eligibility list that they had created, because I had interviewed with them already. She says, "I want you to interview again." And again, Judge Anderson took a chance on me and appointed me in August as a magistrate up there. I oversee a civil docket. I do small claims court two days a week, and I do protection orders three days a week. Um, and and I love my docket. I really, really do. It's by far mostly pro se people, yeah, which I absolutely love. It it actually brings me back to when I was teaching the legal orientation program at the immigration jail because mm. you were teaching people like here's how if you, you know, these are the reasons why you might qualify to stay in the United States and here's how you fight your case on your own. And, um, you know, and I don't get to quite give that much information in court now, but I get to work with pro se people and um, I work really, really hard to try to make them understand why I've come to the decision that I've come, um, even if they don't agree with it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I love my docket. I really do. I know we're going to be rotating uh, in the fall and I'll either go to criminal or family, which I'm sure I'm going to love just as much. But mm-hmm. I have had so much fun being a magistrate. It's it's really, really been wonderful. Other than working with pro se folks, what is your favorite part about either being a magistrate or being a magistrate specific to your docket? I don't know. I don't know that I, I necessarily have another favorite part. It's it's really interesting. Um, at some point, you know, after Judge McCallum became a judge, he told me, he said, you know, if this is something you're going to want to do eventually, you have to understand that this is a career change. Um, this is nothing like what you did before. And those words stuck with me. They they really, really did. And, and I hear those words all the time. Um, and, uh, and it really is. I mean, so a lot of my, if I have another thing that I really, really am loving about my job right now is that I'm learning all mm. sorts of new stuff all the time. Uh, there's new challenges. There's new things that I get to learn about. And, um, you know, I'm learning to not be an advocate. I'm learning to, you know, be, be the person up there making decisions. And, uh, you know, I'm learning to 
listen a lot more carefully and learning to explain things a lot better. Uh, but I love it. I really do. So I have two questions. Sure. One, how did you decide that you wanted to apply to the bench? And two, do you ever feel challenged to make decisions? Do you ever not want to make the decisions? <laughs> do you agonize yeah. over the decision? There's some occasional agony. Um, I'll get there. Um, how did I decide I wanted to be on the bench? Um, was at some point in law school, somebody's like, oh, Brian, you'd be a great judge. And I'm like, I'm not going to be a judge. I'm going to be a lawyer. What are you talking about? What a lovely compliment <laughs> in law school, though. Yeah. My goodness. Uh, so, no, I it actually was a good five years into private practice when I thought, you know, maybe I could be a judge someday. And I went and talked to one of the immigration judges about what it was like and you know, what, what, what does it look like if you eventually want to be a judge someday? Um, and he said, keep doing all the things you're doing, stay involved in ALA, stay, um, you know, keep doing pro bono work, keep fighting these hard cases, keep taking the good cases. I was really picky about the cases I took. It's not that I took easy cases, but if I didn't think I could win the cases, I wasn't going to take the case. And I would tell people all the time, look, you're going to spend ten, fifteen thousand $15,000 with me and we're going right. to lose. Like, I'm yeah. telling you we're going to lose. Mm -hmm. So go take that money and use that to start your life in your home country. Um, you know, don't blow that on a lawyer that's going to lose your case. There were other clients that were like, yeah, we can win this. It's going to be hard. It's going to be long. It's going to be expensive, but we can win this. And and I did. I took challenging cases. I think I had a high success rate in immigration court. But, um, you know, it... Uh, I, I, that was my, that was my benchmark. If I didn't believe in the case, I wasn't taking the case. So, but yeah, so, um, uh, this, this particular immigration judge told me, just keep doing all the things you're doing. And, um, it really kind of served as, as a little bit of a guide and, and a mentor in those aspects as well. And it's still somebody I keep in touch with. He's an immigration judge down in Arizona now. And, um, probably once or twice a year, we'll exchange emails or something and just check in. So. Um, and then what was the second part of the question? Uh, if you ever struggle to make decisions. Uh, yeah, sometimes I do. Um, you know, m making the right decision is important. It, it really is important. Uh, I don't think I struggle so much making the decisions about protection orders. Those ones usually tend to be a little bit more cut and dry. Um, but in small claims court, um, you know, sometimes it's a little bit more of a struggle. Um, did Did... Did the claimant um, or did the plaintiff really bring enough evidence to prove that they um, should have judgment in their favor? And and sometimes those are a little bit more more of a struggle. Interesting. Mm -hmm. Well, um, as we kind of close in on our time here. Oh my gosh, it went so quickly. I know <laughs> because you're such a joy to talk to. Yeah, time flies. Um, we're going to get to our third question. Who are you going to be <gasps> when you grow up? <laughs> I don't know. I really don't know. Um, uh, I always said I wanted to be just like my grandpa when I grew up. And, mm. um, I, you know, he was, uh, he, he died, I think he was 83 years old, maybe 84 years old when he died. And um, the, the most fun 
guy. He was still going to the Broncos games. He had bought season tickets probably about 1980 or so and was still driving up from Canyon City for the Broncos games. Oh, my gosh. Um, and we'd go to the games together. Um, he just was such a joy to be around. Um, he got us – my my, grand, my grandpa did not drink at all, but he got us kicked out of bars um, for being too rowdy. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> Without drinking. Without yeah. drinking. That's remarkable. <laughs> Amazing. Quite a feat. Uh, um, no, I do. I, I miss my grandfather so much every day. Um, so that, you know, who do I want to be when I grow up? I, I want to be the fun old dude. Um, you know, professionally speaking, I'm really happy doing what I'm doing right now. I, I could stay as a magistrate for the entire rest of my career, uh, and I'd be just fine with that. I was, I felt the same way at attorney regulation, though, too. I loved what I was doing there. Um but yeah, I just, um, I recently have an empty nest and, um, so I'm learning to, uh, take some time to myself mm-hmm. and, uh, uh, learning what that's all about and learning my new job. And so I'm just kind of more focused on the present right now than I am on the future. Did your grandpa instill a love of the Broncos he in you? He definitely did. He definitely did. I, um, I, I, my third birthday cake was a Denver Bronco birthday cake. <laughs> and, um, I, um, I went to the games with him for several years. Mm-hmm. Uh, we went out. We all, my whole family, all caravaned out to Canton, Ohio, when John Elway got inducted into oh the Hall of Fame. Um, he went to probably all of the Super Bowls except the '77 one. Um, wow. I, I only went to one of the Super Bowls, but we had a great time. Um, Is there a special robe? On game day, I've heard, <laughs> I've heard murmurings. What? Oh, so I went and talked to Judge Anderson when I first got appointed on the bench, and I said, you know, um, oh no, actually, I sent her an email, and the first sentence of the email was, "I'll pay for it, but." <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh, this will not be a burden on the taxpayers. However, would it be okay if I wear an orange robe on Broncos game days if they happen to be the same day as court days, oh. and so? I have this orange robe um, and I can't remember if it was one day or two days. There was one day in particular that I remember was a Broncos game day um, when court was in session. And I was actually out that week. I had taken, I had planned a vacation for that week, a road trip. Um, cause that was all I did during COVID. That's all I've done is like taken road trips mm. that involved camping. And so I had planned this, this week long trip. And so I missed my opportunity to wear my orange robe, but yes, there, uh. it's hanging in my, it's hanging on my wall and it's, it's there waiting for next season last question what are they going to do about quarterback oh my gosh (laughs) (laughs) that is not my field of expertise (laughs) i think we'll just start cycling through all the other team members and just see who (laughs) (laughs) who else can throw yeah Well, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been such a pleasure to have you. This has been so much fun, and we appreciate you sharing your story with us. Thank you both so much. This has been a lot of fun. This has been Our Voices. For more information on today's guest or to get involved, please check out the CBA podcast page at cobar.org slash podcast. That's C-O-B-A-R org slash podcast. This podcast series was created by members of the Colorado and Denver Bar Associations. Our Voices is a collaborative effort of the EDI Joint Steering Committee Messaging Team 
including Mallory Revel, Linda Moss, Bonnie Schreiner, Mallory Hasbrook, Mo Watson, Mario Trimble, Courtney Holm, and Emmy Lopez, with our CBA Communications Team Director, Heather Folker, and Manager, Charles McGarvey. Our recording engineer is Rick Pontelion of Lionsbridge Recording. Our producer and editor is Courtney Holm, with theme and introduction by Mario Trimble. This podcast is made possible because of the support of the Colorado and Denver Bar Associations. On behalf of all of us, thanks for listening to Our Voices. Our Voices.